Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick, and my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today, climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. Environmentalists are known for their passion. Millions have marched, thousands skipped school in protest, and organizations like Sunrise Movement are pushing policy on U.S. presidential candidates. But are they actually voting? In the 2016 election, nearly 10.1 million self-described environmentalists did not vote. 10.1 million! This shocking statistic is what moved my next guest to get organized and get people voting. Nathaniel Stinnett is the founder and executive director of EVP, the Environmental Voter Project, with one simple goal, get environmentalists to vote. Welcome, Nathaniel. Thank you so much, Christine. I'm really excited for our conversation. I'm very excited. In fact, I've been looking forward to this interview as soon as we scheduled it. As the topic is, it's not just timely, but quite frankly, it's mind-blowing. One would think environmentalists would be the first to vote, but this is far from the case. How is this possible, Nathaniel? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, let me just say that that I too found this surprising. And even though this is what I do every day of my life, there are times when I sit back and I still find it surprising. Because you're right, environmentalists spend a significant amount of time and energy doing really impactful things to fulfill their desires to change society, right? We change the way we get to work. We often change what we're eating. We change the electricity we consume. We do a lot of impactful things. But if you think about it, for decades, all of those things that I just mentioned, what's unique about them, Christine, is they're completely apolitical, right? And if you care deeply about something else, If you care deeply about reproductive rights or gun rights or immigration policy, you view activism as being inherently political. But for some reason in the United States, for decades, environmentalism has been seen as apolitical. And that's part of what we see here. That's part of the reason why environmentalists have a turnout problem. It's because we don't automatically see politics and voting as the most obvious expression of how we're going to change the problems that we see in the world. And at the Environmental Voter Project, we are laser focused on trying to solve that problem. And you're right. I mean, there's nothing more passionate than an environmentalist. They'll go to extreme, strapping themselves to a tree for three months. But is it that they're not making a connection? Do they not know that policy actually could move this? Well, you ask a really good question, Christine, and it's something that we have been studying a lot at the Environmental Voter Project. But unfortunately, I'm going to give you a really unsatisfying answer. And that is, we don't really know why environmentalists aren't voting. And here's why. 
It's one of the easiest things for a social scientist to set up an experiment that tells you how to get someone to take an action, right? That's what behavioral scientists and economists and psychologists are good at. Give someone a $3 coupon and that's enough to get them to buy a coffee. We know how to get people to do stuff. What's really hard is to do the opposite. What's really hard is to set up a scientifically rigorous experiment that tells you why someone isn't doing something. Really, the only way you can measure that is by asking them. And when you ask people why they're not doing something that society views as important, like voting, they lie their pants off. They lie their pants off. (laughs) It's a really hard thing for surveyors to do because of all these response biases. And so there are a few things I can tell you. There are a few things that I do know that are going on, but I want to just be very clear up front because we take a really scientifically rigorous approach. There's a lot of stuff we do know, Christine, but we don't know why environmentalists aren't voting. One thing we do know, though, is perhaps your audience, like many people, have an old or just plain incorrect idea of what your typical environmentalist is. Most people who care deeply about climate or the environment are not like white yuppies like me. Mm -hmm. Instead, your typical environmentalist these days has a much higher likelihood of being a person of color, Mm -hmm. a much higher likelihood of making less than $50,000 a year, and they're more likely to be young rather than old. And those three demographic groups I just mentioned are all less likely to vote than other Americans. So part of what's going on here is a mere demographic correlation. But that's just part of what's going on. Because even when we drill down into those subgroups, even if we look just at, say, young people, the environmentalists vote less often than other young people, there's something else going on there. And it's kind of a black box. But the good news is we do know how to get these people to vote. And and that's what's important. That's really interesting. So you in doing my research and, and looking at, and you have some really great research on your site, I did notice that there seems to be a socioeconomic issue. Those with lower incomes, do you think have less time to vote? I mean, I would say so. I think they're also, if you're saying younger, that they're working jobs that are probably, if they're making under 50 grand a year, they could be doing a lot of service jobs, which is demanding of their time. And, and some people have seen a lot of this and that people just don't think that their voice matters. That's absolutely right. But I think it's important to understand that that's only part of what's going on here. So first of all, yes, you're absolutely right. Part of why environmental turnout is lower than the average turnout in local, state, and federal elections is because we live in a society where with voter suppression and with just general discrimination, it is harder for poor people, young people, and people of color to vote, without a doubt. However, what that does not explain, Christine, is even when you only look at people who make less than $50,000 a year, the environmentalists still vote less often than other people. And even when you only look at African-Americans or Latinx Americans, environmentalists still vote less often than other Black Americans and Latinx Americans. So there's something else going on there. So and, it's the category. It's the category. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I could, <laughs> could take an hour. I mean, I could take a lifetime to actually kind of unravel that. I, I find this fascinating. So here are a few amusing facts I wanted to share. 
that you mentioned about lying. So roughly 50% of people you polled lied about having voted. And then one of the motivating factors to vote was hearing that your neighbor voted. Yeah. So I'm constantly, I, I would consider myself an environmentalist. I care deeply about this planet and climate change. I'm, I'm very well informed on it. I'll speak about it. I even teach, I teach at my son's school to help inform the kids. And one thing I know is that shame doesn't work. You can't shame anyone into doing anything. So you can't say, hey, you're an environmentalist, but you don't vote. Shame on you. That's not going to work. What are some of the tactics that you have found to work? Yeah. So first of all, let me preface this by saying we submit all of our work to randomized control trials. So we literally know with a tremendous degree of scientific rigor how much we are able to increase turnout with particular messages while controlling for all outside variables. And one of the things that works best, and not just for us, but for other people in sort of the the voter turnout field, is something that you alluded to. And that is that even people who don't vote still buy into the societal norm that voting is good. That's why 50% of people we polled lied and said that they voted when they didn't. It's because even if you don't vote, you still want other people to think that you're you're a good voter. It's a really powerful societal norm. And one of the things that we do to get these non-voting environmentalists to vote is to take advantage of that discrepancy, of the fact that there are so many people out there who want to be known as being good voters, but their personal actions don't live up to that. So how do we do that? Oftentimes, we will send the mail reminding them that whether they vote or not is public record and saying, we know it's important to you to be a good voter, but we want to remind you that whether you vote or not is public record. And we even include what elections they've missed in the past. And we say, we know that you want to be known as a good voter. We know you want to get better. We're essentially saying, like, we know you want to live up to what you you think everybody else thinks of you. And that sends turnout through the roof, sometimes three percentage points over the control group. And 3%, Christine, is a big deal in this business. A big, big deal. I can imagine. That's incredible. And so, again, I want to get back to the fact that you said that a lot of these non-voters are young. There is a disproportionately high percentage of young people. So I don't want to make it seem like they're all young. There are okay. lots of old people, but, but yes, there are more young environmentalists than, than, say, young non-environmentalists. So are you able to work with other groups like Sunrise Movement to make sure that the people within that movement or even Extinction Rebellion, which I know is a little bit, it's a little bit on the radical side, but I know you work with others, but to, to work within to make sure that everyone is voting or for them to also help you? Right. So we, there are a lot of legal restrictions about what organizations we can and can't work with. We cannot work with organizations who endorse candidates. It's just illegal for us to do that. But the way that we contact these voters is we do it ourselves. I mean, we now have over 4,000 volunteers around the country. We've already contacted close to 6 million non-voting environmentalists just in 2020, just in 2020, before the like, general election has really kicked off. And we're texting them and calling them and sending them digital ads and direct mail. And we know which messages work with which subgroups the best over which media. 
And so we do the voter contact ourselves. That being said, yes, we work with an enormous number of other nonprofits, many of whom see us as this like behavioral science informed free sort of turnkey field operation. And they just encourage their members, hey, how about you volunteer with the Environmental Voter Project? Because between all of our data science and our behavioral science, we literally know, like by name and street address, who all these non-voting environmentalists are. And we have all these randomized control trials and other behavioral experiments that tell us the best ways to message to these people to turn them into consistent voters. And so really all we need to plug into that is money and volunteers. And so we, we love working with other organizations and not just big national ones, but also local and state ones as well. Okay, so now I'm going to get a little bit political. Great. And I know that this is not Democratic or Republican organization in that also that environmentalists are within both parties, right? But I feel like there's right now, like there's things that I have posted in regards of what the current administration is doing to roll back so many of these policies that are valuable. And, you know, you can take a look at that. Now they want to like take out uranium, right? From, is it the Grand Canyon? Is that, am I correct? From right on the edge. Yeah. 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 So how do you bridge that? Like, can an environmentalist still be a Republican and and disagree, like, I, I mean, like, I don't even know, like, how to, how to, what, how to wrap my head around that. I, I would imagine so. Yeah, so certainly there are many more progressives who list climate or the environment as their number one priority than conservatives. And to be clear, that's who we're targeting. We are targeting people who don't just care about climate or the environment. Mm-hmm. They prioritize it as their number one issue over all others. Yet, they are not voting. That's who we're going after. And then, whether it's a local, state, or federal election, we're getting them to vote. Now, I think you ask a very salient question. I mean, we we live in a moment in time where there are many conservatives who are actively working against a lot of environmental values that we've lived in for a long time. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't Republicans out there who feel that that's wrong. Yeah. Now, again, I'm not going to pretend like those are the, all the people we target. Like, no, right. no, there are many more progressives who, who care right. deeply about these values. But, Christine, what I will say, and I think this is so important, is that there is still one thing that unites all Democrats and Republicans, and that is this. They all really like to win elections. They love to win elections. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, a liberal or conservative, you go where the votes are. And I know that sounds cynical, but it's just the basic arithmetic of how democracy works. You either go where the votes are, or you don't get to be a politician anymore. And so what we do at the Environmental Voter Project is we say, okay, our theory of change is just going to rely on the fact that no elected official is ever going to spend his or her political capital on something that voters don't care about. That just doesn't happen. It never, ever, ever happens. So we're going to concentrate on dramatically increasing the number of voters who prioritize these issues. Not non-voters, but voters. And that will rise the tide. That will raise all the boats and move policymaking, not just at the federal level, but at the state and local level too. Yes. Because sometimes, I mean, 
even when we elect the so-called right person, it isn't like they can just snap their fingers and get everything they want. They still need to decide what to spend their political capital on, and they're not going to spend it on something that voters don't care about. They're just not. We need to dramatically increase the demand for environmental leadership among voters, not non-voters, but voters. That's right. I have found personally here in New York City, which is feels like its own country many times, but that a lot of things are moving at a local level. You know, that's the first thing that I've done. I got to know my city council, get in touch with them, write them letters. Their elections are coming up and I've interviewed a few for Be The Change. And I have found that that really made a, a great impact. But unfortunately, they too, then, you know, you have to look at the, the latter and one would think that our current mayor would be very pro-climate, but in times right now with budget cuts, the first thing to go was composting, which you and I both know is extremely healthy. I think that that is, you know, as we were talking about non-voting, I'm sure you're also pushing them to vote in the primaries. Well, that's right. I mean, so we take habit reinforcement very, very seriously because, again, we're this weird environmental nonprofit that is not in the mind-changing space or the opinion-changing space. We think it's hard and expensive to change people's minds and get them to care more about climate or the environment. We don't do that. That's too hard. (laughs) Let other people do that. We find the people who are already with us, they're just not taking the behaviors we want. And we're nudging them into becoming better voters. And the only way to do that, Christine, I mean, you, you... You can't just talk to them every two or four years when there's a big, sexy federal election. Right. You have to use every opportunity, not just primaries, but local elections, state elections. Heck, even if there's an election for dog catcher, a library trustee, like that is an opportunity for us for a a behavioral intervention to try to turn them into better voters. And last year in 2019, when most people were sleeping off their hangovers from the 2018 midterms, We were active in 613 different local and state elections because that is how you actually change voting habits. That's how you get someone to become a super voter who really drives policymaking. So, Nathaniel, you have over a decade's worth of experience in politics and management of nonprofits that were issue-driven. The New York Times even called you a visionary. (laughs) So I want to ask you, Why go to the voters? Why wouldn't you focus on your political to move policy? What was your process to come and do this and to start EVP? Yeah, well, as eloquent and wonderful as I might think that I am, like no one has a silver enough tongue to convince a politician to do something that is not going to help them get reelected. Like, I, I'm sorry, I just don't have the power, me, little Nathaniel Stinnett, to, to change policymaking. And it's something I saw on all of the campaigns that I, I ran. I think one really, really important bit of information that a lot of your listeners and a lot of Americans might not know is the essential building block, not only to all campaigns, but to all policymaking, comes down to the public voter file. And and if there is just one thing that your listeners take away from this discussion, it it ought to be this. Who you vote for is secret. Pretty much everybody knows that. But whether you vote or not is public record. 
Whether you show up for a city council election or a gubernatorial election or a presidential election, that's public record. And the first meeting on any campaign is a bunch of people opening up their laptops and figuring out based on public files, okay, we want to win a gubernatorial election. Let's see who are all the people who consistently vote in gubernatorial elections. And those are the people who politicians target. Those are the people whose opinions they care about. Those are the people they poll. And what got me into this, Christine, is that I saw in election after election that I was, I was a campaign manager on or a senior advisor on, I realized there are no voters who care deeply about climate or the environment. Obviously, I'm, I'm exaggerating. There are some, but a disproportionately small number of voters. And that frustrated me because when you have limited time and limited money, your campaign isn't going to talk about the issue that nobody cares about. They're just not. And so I quickly became to realize we have no hope of getting really aggressive environmental policymaking at the local, state, or federal level until we dramatically increase the number of voters who care about that. And as I dug into this, I, became, I began to realize, wait a second here. The reason so few voters care about climate or the environment is not because too few Americans do. Actually, there are tens of millions of Americans who care so deeply about it, it's their number one priority. No, they're out there. The problem is just, they're not voting. Mm. We have this behavioral problem, not a persuasion problem. And all, as frustrating as that might seem, it excited me. Because behavioral problems are much easier to solve. And this is an enormous opportunity for the environmental movement because politics is everything for the environment right now. It is everything. And the fact that there is this, this latent pool of political power out there just waiting to be mobilized is a huge opportunity. You know, I really agree. People have asked me, I'll post things on my Instagram account and they'll say, ah, oh, you're making it political. And I said, you know, unfortunately, it is political. Your health is political right now. You need to understand that if you want to move the needle and you want things, you want a healthier environment, you want your son to be, or daughter or anyone to be able to breathe healthy air, you are going to have to vote. You're going to have to look at the issues. You're going to have to do all this tedious stuff because a lot of stuff is also buried. But then, you know what, Nathaniel, you're also going to have to fight the corporations. And so that's the difficult thing. And that's my next question with you is that, so according to a 2017 report, and this is from CDP that I found, this was on the NRDC website, 25 corporate and state producing entities account for 51% of global industrial greenhouse gas emissions. All 100 producers, right? All 100 corporations account for 71% of the greenhouse gas emissions. So do we vote? Does our vote matter or is it already bought? It, has the corporation already bought it from our politicians? There's a group out there. Do you know of us, uh, represent us? Yes. Yep. Right, right. And so the, I think that their MO is that we need your vote. Like we, you know, the corporations own it, right? So we have to take back our vote. What do you think? So Yes, our vote matters. And the mere fact that corporations play politics proves it, Yeah. right? I mean, I mean, what is their money going towards? It you isn't like- The voters who, who are exactly. on their side. 
Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. It goes into campaigns to try to persuade voters to vote for a candidate that will support the right policies. It right. all comes down to votes. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not claiming that corporations don't distort the political marketplace. Of course they do. Of course they do. But that is a proof point of how important your vote is. The fact that all these corporations are saying, oh my gosh, if we don't win elections for these candidates, we're toast, that should prove to you, actually, your vote is the only thing that matters. In fact, your vote is so important that Exxon and Chevron are scared to death of it, and they're going to spend an enormous amount of money to try to convince other voters to balance out your votes. It all comes down to votes. It all comes down to votes. It's part of the reason why, I mean, I think a very useful analogy for this is the NRA. Yeah. Everybody knows what an enormous amount of political power they have, but they assume that all the NRA money goes into lobbying. Actually, the NRA spends almost nothing on lobbying. Almost nothing. The NRA's power comes from the fact that if you care about gun rights right now in the United States of America, you vote like it's your job. You vote for library trustee. You vote for dog catcher. You vote whenever there's an election. And there are so many elected officials who know, man, these people who care deeply about gun rights, they might not take up an enormous part of the American population. But when you look at the smaller group of people, the group that are the ones politicians care about, the ones who actually vote, well, gun rights people have a huge percentage of that group. And that's where the environmental movement needs to be. Yeah. Right now, we're struggling to catch up to average voter turnout. We need to be up where the NRA is. We need to be voting 75, 80, 85% rates whenever there's an election. When we do that, nobody will be able to stop us. Because as I said before, nothing motivates a politician more than the prospect of winning or losing an election. Like they go where the votes are. Well, it's very interesting. Two things. One is that our attorney general right now is working to to get rid of the NRA, which would be quite interesting. Like you said, they were not spending their money <laughs> on lobbying. In fact, right. they, were, they were having really big vacations right. and yachts. So that's interesting. So I wonder where that will go. But then two, I really see your point and agree with it that People who have these beliefs that, you know, I should be able to carry a gun are going to go out and vote. How do we get environmentalists to do that? Like, I believe it is my right to be able to breathe. Yeah, well, a lot of it comes, and this is, you know, we, we live the behavioral science of how to get environmentalists to vote and how to get people to vote in general. And our findings, and it's not just our findings, we, we stand on the shoulders of a, a whole bunch of academic giants and other people in the field who are doing research on this. It's kind of counterintuitive. We know how to get these people to vote, but it's not what you might expect. What you should not do, what does not work, Christine, is to try to rationally convince someone of the importance of voting because of the issue that they care about. Because what we've come to realize and what other organizations and academics have come to realize is that even though we like to think of ourselves as rational animals, most people don't approach the act of voting as a transaction. Most people don't approach it as a cost-benefit analysis. Like, I'm going to walk out the door and vote because I think that my one vote might make someone get elected and then my life will get a lot better. Like, 
That's not the thought process we go through. Instead, instead of that, which is called rational choice theory, most behavioral scientists view voting and, and other habits under the rubric of what's called expressive choice theory. And the idea is this. When we take a certain action, it is often not a cost-benefit analysis. Rather, it's us expressing an aspect of our personality. So for instance, I could probably ask you right now whether you're going to vote in the 2016 midterm elections. And you don't know who's on the ballot. You don't know what the issues are going to be. But chances are you'll probably tell me, yeah, of course I'm going to vote. Why? Because you're a voter. At some point in your life, Christine, you probably decided, I want to be civically engaged. I want to be a voter. It's part of who I am. And so many of our decisions, so many of our actions flow from that. And so when you ask about how do we get environmentalists to vote, what we need to do is we need to be loud and proud about it being part of our identity. I am an environmentalist and therefore I am a voter. The reason I vote is because I'm an environmentalist. When we make these sort of normative associations about what being an environmentalist means, other people take cues from us. We're all still on the fourth grade playground. Like peer pressure works and we're looking around at our friends and our peers to try to figure out what does it mean to be a good neighbor? What does it mean to be a good environmentalist? What does it mean to be a good human being or a good American? And the more we model the fact that being a voter equates to being a good environmentalist, that will drive turnout much more than trying to rationally convince someone the value of their one vote where millions of people are going to show up. Interesting. So tell me, Nathaniel, how are you doing this? Yeah. So I'll give you some examples. So right now, as you and I are talking, there are probably dozens, maybe hundreds of volunteers just today for the Environmental Voter Project texting and calling these non-voting environmentalists for us across 12 states. And the messages that they're using take advantage of these sort of behavioral science frameworks that I've mentioned. And one of them might go something like this. It would be a text message that says, Christine, did you know last time there was an election, 73 people on your block of Main Street turned out to vote? That's it. That's it. Simple, like juvenile peer pressure. (laughs) But it works. It works because most people, when confronted with the fact that like all of their neighbors are voting, either through FOMO or a desire to fit in or, or something, they're more likely to vote. Another tool that we use And it's very, very basic. In fact, many of your listeners who've ever volunteered for a campaign might have experienced this themselves. What we do is, again, we're only contacting people who don't vote. We try to get them to promise that they're going to vote. So reach out to you and say, hey, Christine, there's an election coming up on November 3rd. Do you intend to vote? Oh, well, that's great. How likely do you think? Oh, very likely that you're going to vote? Outstanding. Thank you. That's like a trap being shut. Because what that allows us to do is come back in October and say, Christine, I just want to remind you, in late August, you made a promise that you were going to vote. Now early voting has begun, and we know it's important for you to keep your promises and be an honest and trustworthy person. We hope you'll remember to vote, and after the election, we might check in with you to find out how your experience went. Well, what that's done right there 
is instead of me trying to convince you of the importance of voting, I've turned it into pretty much a decision about whether you're going to be an honest person who keeps their promises or not, <laughs> which is a much stronger societal norm. If we can make it a decision about that, are you a promise keeper or are you a liar, <laughs> rather than the importance of your one vote, that's really powerful. Yeah. That's interesting. That's interesting. But yet 48% still lie about their record, but they don't lie about this. Like if you put them on, on tax, like saying, yes, I am going to vote, then they will. You have documents like you, you followed yeah. up. Yeah. Yes. Now, again, I'm not going to claim like all 48% of them will. Okay. No, though, this is, this is at the margins, but will it increase turnout? Absolutely depending on the election and depending on the, the communications medium, you can sometimes increase turnout just by getting someone to promise and then reminding them of that promise. You can increase turnout two, three percentage points. And I know that might not sound like a lot, but ask Hillary Clinton how big a deal 3% is. Like these are big, big numbers in this business. Exactly, exactly. So, okay, Nathaniel, we're coming to the end of our interview, but I have two more questions for you. So one, First one, though, is a question that I ask every guest who's been on is, I know you've been doing this for a while. It's been about five years, right? Four. Yep. Four, four. years. Okay. Yep. And you're in politics. And that's, I mean, that's just saying the word politics brings up frustration for me. So <laughs> I know that you have many ups and downs, right? So what is your why? What keeps you going every day? And what gets you up and to continue this process? So it's a great question. And before I answer it, I just want to be totally honest and say it's not always easy. And I think it's really important for everybody to recognize this, no matter what business they're in. Just because you have a why doesn't mean you whistle through every single day of your life. And especially for those of us involved in politics and the climate movement, it's really important to recognize some of the grief and some of the frustration and some of the anxiety of working on these, these existentially important issues. Yes. That being said, I do have a why. I actually have two of them. The first is, I don't want this to be who humanity is. We're better than this. We are so, so much better than the lack of stewardship we are showing right now. And I just, I like to think, and I'm not going to pretend like I have this, this wonderfully formed understanding of why we exist on this planet. I don't. But I'd like to think that we weren't put here to destroy everything. I don't want that to be our purpose. The second why is, you know, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter and a six-and-a-half-year-old daughter. And not only do I want them to grow up in a safe world where they can enjoy breathable air and drinkable water and just, and just have fun outside, but also, to be totally honest, and I, I realize this is going to sound kind of like conceited or selfish, like I tell them a lot of stories about my grandparents and about my parents. My parents are alive, thankfully, but they don't get to see them every day. We're in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I know that my kids are going to tell stories about me. And I, I want them to, to think well of me. I want them to think that like their dad did good stuff. I want them to be proud of me. And I want them to tell their kids stories about me that, that makes them proud. And so I, 
I'm a middle-aged man. It's not like I'm on death's door or anything, but I want to have a legacy, if only for my children, that I worked on something that they can be proud of. I I really, really want that. That's beautiful. They'll know that you were a helper. Yeah. You were a helper. I hope so. Nathaniel, can you tell us how we can find an environmental voter project and more importantly, how we can sign up and help? This is all volunteers, correct? Yes. Some aspect of our work is not volunteer driven. So we we obviously have staff and we send out direct mail and digital advertisements and we have a, a fairly significant budget. But all of our texting and calling is done by volunteers. And so people can go to environmentalvoter.org and it's very easy to, you click get involved, you sign up to volunteer and you'll immediately get an email where you can sign up for almost every day we have online volunteer trainings. And we give you all the information. You get trained, and then from the comfort of your own home, you can text or call these people who we've already identified as being non-voting environmentalists, and we provide you with all of the behavioral science-informed language to get them to vote. So we would love to have people go to environmentalvoter.org, support our work financially, but obviously, if you're willing to volunteer, that would be wonderful. Because what I do know is not too long from now, we're all going to be sitting down on our couches to watch election returns roll in. And we're going to be anxious and we're going to have regrets and we're going to wish that we had done more. And this is a very, very real opportunity to do more. You can help us get more environmentalists to vote. Well said, well said. And do we have to be 18 to do this? You do not have to be 18 to do this. We certainly want people to be at least 16 if they're going to text and call voters. If there wasn't a pandemic going on, we require people people to be at least 18 to do door-to-door canvassing, but we're we're obviously not doing door-to-door canvassing these days. And I think it's important because I think there are a lot of, you know, like my son who, not 18 yet, but would like to help. We saw millions of children marching, right? Uh, Not so long ago. And I think that they would like to be involved and to move that needle for the environment. So thank you so much. So thank you, Nathaniel. I I can't thank you enough for being here today and for all the work that you're doing and, and for being the change. It's been a pleasure to have you today. Well, thank you for inviting me. This was a wonderful conversation. And thank you for all the work that you're doing, Christine. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired. We grow with supporters and listeners like you. So please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at bethechange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.bethechange.nyc. That's bethechange.nyc. Thank you and be well.